In our current mini-series, we've established a pervasive prophetic principle. Here's, here's just a very brief review. This is uh, really this whole series on Israel uh, uh, showing um, how important it is. This is really the underlying uh, precept. Here it is. Write it in, the pervasive prophetic principle. The key to understanding the future of the world, here's your blanks, is understanding the future of Israel. And tonight, we're going to look at a corollary to this principle. Here's your next blank. Ready? Here's tonight's work. It's a corollary to this principle. The key to understanding the future of Israel, there's your blank, of Israel, is understanding the Old Testament deliverers of Israel. Ready? The key to understanding the future of Israel is understanding the Old Testament deliverers of Israel. Now, why would this be the case? Why would understanding the last days be linked to any individual figures in the Old Testament when, when all eschatology is all about Jesus? It's all about the return of Christ to set everything right. So how in the possibly could an Old Testament character or figure have anything to do? And this leads us to a question. Here it is, an important biblical precept. Here's your blanks. Write it in. Understanding Christ's return to save Israel in the future requires understanding the foreshadowings, F-O-R-E, right, forward, ahead of, understanding the foreshadowings of Christ who saved Israel in the past. Let me say that again, since there's three blanks. Understanding the, uh, the Christ's return to save Israel in the future requires understanding the foreshadowings of Christ who saved Israel in the past. Those who were deliverers, who were saviors in the past for Israel in the Old Testament. And believe it or not, there are scores of them in the Hebrew Scriptures, enough of them that we could literally spend a year studying the prophetic pictures or foreshadowings or types, as the theologians call it, being typical of Christ in the Scripture. It's difficult to overstate the importance of these remarkable prophecies about the future. In essence, the lives of these biblical figures, right, deliverers, foreshadowings of saviors, if you will, with little s, uh, it, it's, it's um, in essence, the, the, the lives of these biblical figures play out in advance what will happen in the last days. But fortunately, you don't have to see dozens of them to comprehend the importance of these characters in biblical prophecy. So in the next few weeks, we're going to look at just three of these. Again, there are at least dozens, probably scores. We're going to look at Joseph, Gideon, and David. These are gigantic lives, right, taking up many chapters of the Bible, but we're going to really focus in on how they are typical of or foreshadowings of the, re the return of Christ. And as we do this, I believe you'll be amazed at how much we learn about the end times from these biblical figures who lived centuries before Jesus of Nazareth lived. So tonight, we're going to look at a biblical figure that has an amazing but subtle, very subtle, as you'll see, prophetic linkage to the second coming of Christ. And as we begin, we actually need some background information about Israel that comes from another Old Testament figure, Moses, one who we could spend a month on, how he's a foreshadow. There's there's over 40 ways in which he's, a, he's typical of Christ, a foreshadowing or a prophetic picture of Christ, right? You have to look at Moses. 
And we'll have to connect some dots to understand how Moses links to Joseph and his brothers. And this linkage begins in, of all places, the book of Revelation. So turn with me to the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 15. And let's pick up in, in this last book of the Bible at a time in the future during the last three and a half years of history, the Great Tribulation, when the seven bowl judgments will be poured out on the earth. And notice this grid you've become very familiar with. This is Daniel's 70th group of seven years, the future tribulation, Jacob's distress as, or J Jacob's trouble uh, time, as, uh, as Jeremiah called it. Um, and notice here you have the covenant, the peace treaty that begins the seven years. It's really a false peace, but for three and a half years, they get to do the daily sacrifice in Israel. But during this time, things are getting ugly because you, during this time, uh, you get uh, 14 specific judgments, right? You get the seven seal judgments and you get the seven trumpet judgments and the seventh trumpet judgment sounds uh, and you get the, then the whole uh, thing going on with the abomination of desolation the beginning of the 666 economic campaign, uh, the slaughter of, of millions of people who are beheaded for failing to be willing to, to bow down to now the self-proclaimed God who has desecrated the temple. Okay, so this has happened, and for Israel, this time has not been, uh, has, has actually been protective, uh, right? They think he's their Messiah. The Antichrist, they think, is the Christ. Um, but now we have come into chapter 15, and this is, this is at the beginning of the bowl judgments, which is where you start this three and a half years, and literally hell comes to earth, okay, in the bowl judgments. That's right where we are uh, uh, going into this great tribulation, as Jesus called the second half of the tribulation. Um, and look with me, uh, Revelation chapter 15, verse 1, and I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues. These are going to be the seven bowls, the seven bowl judgments. Seven plagues, which are the last, because of them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang, I don't know if you've ever noticed this before, they sang the song of Moses. What? We're now sometime in the future, more than halfway into the tribulation, in the great tribulation, and notice they're singing the song of Moses, the bondservant of God and the song of the Lamb, saying, great and marvelous are your works, Oh. Lord God, the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Now, at this point in Revelation, an heir, think of what's, what's happening. The bold judgments are just about to start. The Antichrist has now been shown who, for who he is, and he's starting to uh, the biggest genocide in the history of the world. So uh, an air of overwhelming expectation has filled the halls of heaven at this point. Attention is drawn to seven mighty angels holding bowls filled with God's wrath and ready to be poured out on the earth. Suddenly, the saints begin to sing. <laughs> the saints begin to sing the song of Moses? The song was written 3,500 years ago. It seems totally random and out of place. 
Why would they sing this particular song from ancient Israelite history during the Great Tribulation? What in the world does the Song of Moses have to do with the end of time? Well, no matter how random it seems, there's no question about the intent of this text being in Revelation 15. You ready? Here's your blank. The intent of the text, because it shows up at the end of Revelation, the Song of Moses, here's your blanks, the Song of Moses is a prophecy of the last days. So what's the Song of Mo Moses? Well, it turns out it's a series of chapters in the Bible, and each chapter is dedicated to a different tribe of Israel. The specific Bible chapters make up the Song of Moses are in Deuteronomy 32 and 33, and in Psalm chapters 90 through 100. And these chapters are repeatedly referred to as the Song of Moses in the rabbinical writings of Israel. And as you'll see, the scripture calls these the Song of Moses. To see how the song begins, let's pick up the story. Turn with me to all the way back to the Pentateuch, to Deuteronomy, uh, the fifth book in the Bible, right? The fifth of the Pentateuch, or five, written by, or at least compiled, uh, mostly by Moses. Um, and here we pick up the story, as Moses has finished writing the books of the law, and then he starts railing, I mean railing on the Israelites because of their disobedience and their rebellion. Look at the, the run-up to, uh, to chapter 32, uh, and, and look, what, look what happens here. Verse 28 in chapter 31. Assemble to me all the elders of, of your tribes and your officers that I may speak these words in their hearing and call the heavens and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death, you will act corruptly. It's, it's so funny. Talk about a user-friendly preacher, huh? And you will turn from the way which I have commanded you and evil will befall you in the latter days. By the way, that's important. We'll come back to that. In the latter days, for you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Verse 30, then Moses spoke in the hearing of all the people of the assembly of Israel the words of this song. So here's the beginning of the song of Moses. They were, until they were complete. Verse 32, give ear, O heavens, this is where we begin the song of Moses. Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. And then you begin these first two chapters of the song of Moses, which continue in Psalm 90 through 100, where the psalmist, uh, clearly from the word, the Holy Spirit, giving him the rest of the song of Moses, does this amazing set of, absolutely a stun stunning set of chapters. But I want to notice something. Moses reminds them of their stubbornness and rebellion, and then he commands them to open their ears. So this is a big announcement. Here's going to be your blank. A big announcement at the beginning of the song. Moses was declaring that Israel was spiritually deaf. Spiritually deaf. So now let's look at the next chapter in the song chapter 33. This chapter gives a blessing to each tribe of Israel except one. You may never have noticed this before if you've read Deuteronomy in this section. Every tribe gets a blessing except one. And as we look, I want us to see which tribe of Israel is missing. And this will give us the key to unlocking the riddle 
of the Song of Moses that will lead us to some amazing revelations about Israel's history and about Israel's future. So look at chapter 33 and just watch as, you, as we scroll through this together. Uh, notice with me. Chapter 33. Chapter 33. And uh, starting with... Um, if I can, it's a long chapter, 32, isn't it? 33, look at this. Starting with verse 1. Now, this is the blessing which Moses, the man of God, blessed the sons of Israel before his death. Verse 6. May Reuben live and not die. Verse 7. And this regarding Judah, so he said. Verse 8. And of Levi, he said. Verse 12. And of Benjamin, he said. Notice how the paragraphs are starting with this. Verse 13, and of Joseph, he said. Verse 18, of Zebulun, he said. Rejoice, Zebulun, in your going forth. And Issachar, notice there's two, two tribes there in, in verse 18. And Issachar, in your tents. Verse 20, and of Gad, he said. 22, and of Dan, he said. <coughs> 23, and of Naphtali, he said. 24, and of Asher, he said. So, in the Song of Moses... Which tribe is missing? Now, the typical Christian evangelical has no clue what the 12 tribes of Israel are, especially naming all of them. But here, let's write it in. Here's the tribe that's missing. It's Simeon. Simeon is missing. S-I-M-E-O-N. Now, why would the blessing of Moses in Deuteronomy 33 exclude the tribe of Simeon? I mean, who's ever heard about Simeon, right? I mean, you got Judah, who you get the line of David and the kingly line. You've got Levi, who's the priesthood. You got, you know, Reuben, who was, it, he was the eldest son. You got uh, these, you know, special Benjamin, the youngest. And Joseph is kind of an amazing guy. But what's Simeon here for, right? Um, it turns out that the key to unlocking this riddle is in the meaning of the Hebrew word Simeon. Here's the key. Here's your next blank. The key to unlocking the riddle of the missing tribe. As a proper noun, Simeon, notice the capital S here in your notes, Simeon is a name. It's the name of one of the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, one of the 12 patriarchs, one of Joseph's brothers, as we'll see tonight. Right? As a proper noun, Simeon is a name. But when the word Simeon, notice little s, is used as a verb, it means hearing. It means hearing. It means to hear. And just as Simeon is mysteriously missing from the Song of Moses, so will the spiritual hearing be missing from Israel until the latter days. So let's look again at the beginning of Deuteronomy 32 and see what was not obvious when we read this the first time, unless you are a way better Hebrew scholar than me, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar at all. So notice, back to verse 28 in, in the lead up to chapter 32. Cha so chapter 31, verse 28, and assemble to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers that I may speak the word in their hearing and call the heavens, notice, in their hearing and call the heavens to witness against them. Now watch the number of hearing, hear, listen, if you will. For I know that after my death you will act corruptly and turn the way which I commanded, turn from the way that I commanded you, and evil will befall you in the latter days. So you see the prophecy of the end times starting to mix in here. Way more on that uh, tonight and next week. 
For you will do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger with the work of your hands. Then Moses spoke, listen, in the hearing of all the assembly of Israel, the words of his, this song until they were complete. And now look how the song of Moses begins. Give ear. Some translations will say, listen, O heavens, and let me speak. And let the earth hear, notice, hear the words of my mouth. So let's look at the Hebrew word Simeon in the text of Deuteronomy 32 and 33. Here's your blanks, write it in. The word Simeon, notice here, not capitalized. The word Simeon is present, but hidden as a verb to hear, right? The word Simeon is present in chapter 32. But since they refuse to hear, here's your next blank, since they refuse to hear to Simeon, since they refuse to Simeon in the Hebrew, the word Simeon now with a capital S is missing from chapter 33. Got that? He's saying, hear, listen, give ear, obey, which is hearing and obeying are very, very closely tied in the Hebrew. And because that is missing in chapter 32, the tribe of Simeon in a classic Hebrew wordplay now the proper name Simeon is removed from 33 and no blessing is given to Simeon because of their spiritual deafness. So what in the world do all these mean? These chapters are a prophecy about the tribes of Israel and the fact that Simeon is missing from the list of tribes in chapter 33 and cloaked in a word riddle in chapter 32 has profound spiritual meaning. So here's what the riddle means. Here's your blank. Spiritual hearing, okay, so awareness, insight, ability to listen and obey. Spiritual hearing, here's your blank, spiritual hearing would be missing from Israel, notice, until the latter, two T's, until the latter days. In other words, even though God would give his word to the Jews and would give them special access to spiritual truth, despite all of this, they'd be deaf. They wouldn't be able to hear what God was saying. And in fact, except during rare times of spiritual revival, this has been true of Israel throughout its entire history. So with this background, now we're ready to see some remarkable things about Israel's inability to recognize their Messiah, Jesus, when he came to them the first time. And this will also give us some unique insights into what will happen to Israel when their Messiah comes the second time in the latter days at the end of the age. This is going to be fun. I'm taking you through a lot of Old Testament stuff. Some may be saying, wow, where is this going to be, have any meaning? Trust me, it will have serious meaning. So with this background, we're now ready to see some remarkable things about Israel's inability to recognize their Messiah. And the way we're going to approach this is by looking at the story of Joseph and his brothers. With our understanding of the usages of the word Simeon, right, little s and big S in the Song of Moses, we're now ready to discover some deep meanings in the Joseph story. So let's look at the remarkable account of Joseph and the patriarchs, the patriarchs being the general name for the 12 brothers, the 12 sons of Jacob. 
We'll pick up the story after he was sold into Egypt by his brothers. He's been in prison and then released because he was able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. He helped them to save Egypt through his brilliant plan to store the grain during the seven years of plenty. And now they're in the seven years of famine. And Pharaoh has put him in charge of administering the entire empire. He is a Daniel, if you will. He's the next in line, if you will, next in charge of Egypt, like Daniel was for actually two empires, Babylon and Medo-Persia. Uh, but turn with me to the first book of the Bible, uh, back to the left four books, to Genesis chapter 42. Genesis chapter 42, and if you have something to, to put there, um, we're going to be back and forth uh, from Genesis uh, 42. Uh, look at this. We're going to read a fairly significant portion of the section. So if you have your Bibles, which you should always have for Thursology, of course, because that's the... This is the book for Thursology. Um, it'll help you to read along. Uh, I'm in the New American Standard, if that helps if you're doing an electronic Bible. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? Don't you love it? The cluelessness of the kids. Some things never change, right? Verse 2, And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some now for us from that place, so that we may live and not die. So this is a serious famine. Then 10 brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. Remember, Joseph now already in Egypt, already in charge of Egypt and running the place, especially running the plan to uh, sell the feed to the world that comes. Verse 4, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming for the famine in the land of Canaan was great. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them you're going to see, if you read this whole text, it's just unbelievable. He really works them all the way through because they don't have a clue who he is. Of course, they think he's dead. Um, uh, they, they don't have a clue who he is. So when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself. And he went to them and he spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, by the way, this is through an interpreter. He's speaking in Egyptian now. Um, Where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Very interesting. We're going to see how, what a prophetic type this is of the Jews and Christ. And Joseph remembered, verse 9, remembered the dreams which he had had about them and said to them, You are spies who have come to look at the undefeated parts of our land. Then they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. man. We are honest men. Oh, that must have really gotten him. Oh my goodness, honest men after they've deceived their father and, uh, and, and sold his favorite son, their brother. Your servants are not spies. And yet he said to them, no, but you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, your servants are 12 brothers in all. They're telling the truth there. Uh, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is with their, our father today. That's Benjamin, who uh, Joseph, Jacob wouldn't let go, right? And one is no more. They believe Joseph is dead. And Joseph said to them, is, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from the place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you 
that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. Now, Joseph said to them on the third day, do this and live for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison. But as for the rest of you, carry grain for the famine of your households. All right, they're going to keep one. He's going to keep one of the brothers in prison so he knows they'll have to come back. But he's going to give grain to the nine so that they can take it back so all the family, Jacob's family, Joseph's, Joseph's family, Joseph knows it, they don't, but Joseph's family won't starve to death back in Canaan. And no, uh, notice verse 20, and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, to the light comes on, right? Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because he saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. <laughs> we'll be back with that, right? We would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Reuben the oldest, of course, saying then, did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen now comes the reckoning for his blood. Verse 23, they did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. So make sure you get the picture. They can't understand Joseph because he's speaking in Egyptian as the Egyptian leader. So he has, even though he speaks obviously flawless Hebrew, it's his primary language, rather than speaking Hebrew to the brothers, which they would instantaneously know who he was, he speaks to a person who knows, an interpreter who knows Egyptian and Hebrew. And so all of this is going on through an interpreter, right? Um, verse 24, and he turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them, he spoke to them. He took, you ready? He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Now, even on the surface, this is an amazing story, isn't it? But with the background that we now have from the Song of Moses, we can see that it's really an incredible story about Israel's spiritual deafness. Nearly 2,000 years before Christ, remember Abraham? So it's been Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and his brothers. So this is about 100 years after Abraham, who you can just date at 2,000, right? So this is almost two millennia before Christ, and it's over 500 years before Moses. This story contains remarkable prophetic insights into the future of God's people, the Israelites, and the way they would treat their own Messiah. So let's look at three prophetic insights from this amazing story. Number one, here you are. Look at verse 21 with me. Genesis 42, verse 21. Then they said to one another, truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. So number one, write it in from verse 21. We would not listen. Notice the root word for listen, Simeon in the Hebrew language. Isn't this amazing? Now look at verse 22. And Reuben answered them and said, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not Listen, so write it in. Number two, you would not listen. Simeon, the root word for all of this, it's a remarkable linkage to the Song of Moses, right? Now, verse 23, 
They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. Verse 23, write it in. They did not know that Joseph understood. They think this is a clueless Egyptian, and he doesn't have a clue what they say, and that they certainly don't have a clue what he's saying. Notice the meaning of this statement in Hebrew, right? This statement that he took is just really remarkable. They could not only understand their brother Joseph through an interpreter. They could only. His words meant nothing to them. When he spoke, they didn't get it. In other words, they couldn't hear. They couldn't perceive. They couldn't understand what Joseph, their deliverer, by the way, what Joseph said. So verse 24, look at this. This is just over the top, right? And he turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them, he spoke to them. He took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Write it in. Number four, he took Simeon from them and bound him. Notice what this statement means in the ancient language. Because, here's your blanks, because they had repeatedly shown that their eyes were blind and their ears were deaf, Simeon, hearing, was taken from them, bound up, there's your blank, bound up and imprisoned. Their hearing, their spiritual hearing, it was bound up and imprisoned because of the hardness of their hearts. And now you may recall last week that the Apostle Paul emphasized this about the Jews in Romans chapter 11. Look at it. It's in, your, it's in your notes there. The text is, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained. But those who were chosen obtained it. And the re rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. So now we're ready to see the deepest and most profound meaning of this story. It's prophetic insight number two. Here's your blanks. Write it in. Joseph was a prophetic type. In other words, typical of, a foreshadowing of, a picture of. Joseph was a prophetic type of Christ's first coming. Let's look in, at the many ways that the story prophesies that Israel would reject their Messiah when he came, the picture of Joseph being a picture of Jesus. Joseph, their deliverer. Jesus, their later deliverer, with a capital D. But notice, number one, write it in. Joseph was sent to deliver the sons of Israel from certain death. We saw that we may live and not die, is what Jacob sends them off for food. During the famine, they were going to starve to death, but Joseph saved them. Number two. Joseph was exalted, here's your blanks, before his brothers, as a great ruler and, ready, they hated him enough to murder him. What a perfect prophetic picture. When Jesus, Jesus acknowledged that he was their savior, that he was God, he was the I am that was there before Abraham was there, I am, in that amazing John chapter 8 section, what did the Jews try to do? They tried to stone him to death. What a perfect prophetic picture. Number three, when he presented himself to the sons of Israel, here's your blanks, they didn't recognize him as their brother or their deliverer. 
<laughs> Amazing. And so it was with Jesus. In fact, the Jews said that Jesus was from Satan. They didn't only recognize, recognize him as their Christ, their Messiah, their Savior. They called him of Satan. Look back at verse uh, 21 now in, in Genesis 42. They said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, because we are in distress of his soul when he, he was in distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Therefore, this distress has come upon. Number four, write it in. They refused to listen to him, to Joseph. And so it was with Jesus. Listen to this text. In fact, it's in your, it's in your notes from John chapter 8. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, talking to now the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the council. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Can you believe the parallels with Joseph? They can't hear. They can't understand what he's saying. It is because you cannot hear my word. Number five, look with me at verse 22 again. We're getting good at these now, right? And Reuben answered and said, uh, saying, did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy and you would not listen? Now comes the reckoning for his blood. Here's number five, write it in. They sinned against him and became guilty of his blood. And so it was with Jesus. Look at Matthew 27 with me. It's in your notes. Pilate said to them, listen, excuse me, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, isn't this amazing? Here's Israel. They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more saying, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And all the people said, are you ready for this? Have you ever noticed the parallel? All the people said, his blood shall be on us and on our children. Wow. For number six, Genesis 42, 23, verse 23. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. Here's number six, right in your blank. Joseph spoke to them in words that they could not understand without an interpreter. And just as Joseph deliberately covered his identity by using another language, Jesus couched his teaching in cryptic parables that the Jews couldn't understand. This wasn't because he didn't want them to understand. Listen, this wasn't because he didn't want them to understand, but because their hard hearts had made them hard of hearing. We see this in Matthew chapter 13. Now, keep something, uh, keep something uh, in your, in your uh, Genesis thir uh, 42, because we're going to be coming back to Genesis 42, okay? Um, but uh, go with me to Matthew, to the text. This is a long enough text. We're going to read it. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Uh, look with me at verse 9. Matthew 13, verse 9. He who has ears, let him hear. Is this not a parallel passage? 
He who has ears, let him hear. And the disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Them meaning the Hebrew leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the ones who knew the word backward and forward, the ones who should have been saying, there's our Messiah, look at this. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said to them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he shall have in abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because while, this is remarkable, while seeing they do not see, and while hearing do they not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, by the way, he's now reaching back to Isaiah 40, look at this, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return. And I would heal them. Isn't that amazing? If they hadn't hardened their hearts and closed their eyes and become spiritually deaf with their ears covered, not wanting to hear the truth, not wanting to hear and know God's word, he would have healed them, but their hard hearts kept it. And so he taught in parables that the, those who were open to the Holy Spirit's moving could understand and thought these are the most profound parables we've ever heard. But to them, they were so hard-hearted they could not hear. So, it was with Jesus. Number seven, uh, let's, uh, let me just say this before we go to number seven. So because of Israel's repeated rebellion against God, the Spirit of God left the temple. We taught that a couple months ago in Ezekiel. The Spirit of God, the Shekinah glory of God left the temple. And without the Holy Spirit to interpret the word of God, they didn't have a clue. So in the same way the sons of Jacob, Israel, didn't understand Joseph speaking, the sons of Israel didn't understand Jesus speaking. Now back to Genesis. Remember I warned you, back to Genesis chapter 42. Fortunately, it's the, if, you, if you lost it, didn't keep a finger there. It's the first book in the Bible, fortunately. Look back to verse 24, the end of that paragraph, 42, 24. And he turned away from them and wept. Number seven, here's your blanks. When Joseph recognized that he must imprison Simeon because of their spiritual deafness, his response was grief. And so it was with Jesus at the triumphal entry. As he was approaching Jerusalem, Jesus knew that their hosannas would be short-lived and that just four days later, on Thursday, as you know, they'd be yelling, crucify him, crucify him. And look at Jesus' response in Luke 19. It's in your notes. When he approached Jerusalem, so here's the triumphal entry, the Hosanna, Hosanna day that they didn't mean. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known the things which make for peace, but they have been hidden from your eyes. Spiritual deafness, spiritual blindness at the first coming of Joseph, at the first coming of Jesus. So as with Joseph, Jesus 
finally presented himself before Israel as their deliverer. But just as the pharaohs didn't, excuse me, just as the patriarchs didn't recognize God's salvation plan through Joseph, their descendants didn't recognize God's salvation plan through Jesus. And tragically, at the very moment of their imminent deliverance, their spiritual deafness led them to reject their salvation. And when they did this, both Joseph and Jesus wept bitterly over them. So, having seen the clear picture that Joseph is a prophetic type foreshadowing of Christ's first coming, we're ready for prophetic insight number three. Prophetic insight number three. Here's your blank. Joseph was a prophetic type of Christ's second coming. Remember, number two was Joseph was a prophetic type of Christ's first coming, but number three, Joseph was a prophetic type of Christ's second coming. So at this point in the Joseph story, Jacob's sons have returned home, but they're going to go back to Egypt, and Joseph is going to appear to them a second time. Notice, first coming of Joseph, second coming of Joseph, and here we see the remarkable parallelism. It's a key prophetic link. This is in your notes here. A key prophetic link between Joseph and Jesus, between Joseph's first and second appearances to the sons of Israel. Simeon, remember, Simeon remained bound and they remained deaf. And so, to see the parallel, let's look at what happened to the spiritual ears of Israel after their first encounter with Jesus. We're going to pick up, you can turn to the book of Acts, we're going to pick up the story in Paul's story at the very end of Acts in chapter 28. Here, Paul is under house arrest in Rome where he will spend two years before he's finally executed by Caesar. And he has called for many religious leaders from Israel to come here as defense of Christ. And a large group of them have now showed up and are giving him audience before them. So turn with me again to Acts. Acts chapter 28, the very last chapter of Acts. And uh, look with me at verse 23. So Acts chapter 28, verse 23. And when they had set a day for him, Paul, right, for all these Jewish leaders from Jerusalem to come hear his defense of Christ, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them solemnly, testifying about the kingdom of God, and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning until evening. And some of them being persuaded by these things spoken, but others would not believe. Notice, would not believe. And when they had, did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit, here, is, here comes Paul preaching it, exactly as Jesus had said. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through Isaiah the prophet, guess what, back to Isaiah 40, for, for, to, to your father saying, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. Have you heard this before? And you will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, they have closed their eyes lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and I would heal them. Verse 28, 
Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been, are you ready for this? Has been sent to the Gentiles. And they will, can you believe it? If this was written in Hebrew, you know what the word would be? They will simeon. They will hear. Let me read that again. Let it be known to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So the story of Joseph is an incredible prophecy. Here's your blanks. Write it in. Israel would be spiritually deaf from the time of their first encounter with Jesus when he came and they crucified him until the second encounter with Jesus on the final day of history. See now how the first few weeks are starting to all come together? Spiritually deaf from Christ's first coming until his second coming. Between the first and second encounters, Israel spiritually deaf. And the validity of this prophecy is still being verified today. Tragically, Israel is far and away the most atheistic nation in the Western world. Over 30% of those who live in Israel, when asked, say they do not believe in God. The spiritual deafness of Israel today is stunning. And now I want to link this to what we've learned in the last three weeks. It's another prophetic linkage, and here's your blank. Just as the story of Joseph, despite being rejected at his first appearance, Jesus will deliver the Jews at his second appearance. Just as in the story of Joseph, despite being rejected at his first appearance, Jesus will deliver the Jews at his second appearance. Look with me again at a passage that we studied extensively two weeks ago from Romans chapter 11. Listen to this, one of the most amazing passages in all the text. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed about this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Isn't that remarkable? At the first coming of Joseph, the brothers reject him, want to kill him. His blood is on their hands. At the first coming of Jesus, exactly the same. And between that and the second coming of Joseph, their deliverer, the second coming of Jesus, the, the, the great deliverer, in between they are spiritually deaf. So look at this. And so, at his second coming, all Israel will be saved. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now let's pause for just a moment. Next week, we'll go through the details of Joseph's second appearance before his brothers. It's amazing. We'll see the accumulation of this promise and the remarkable linkage between the Joseph story and the second coming of Christ. Not just the first coming, but the second coming of Christ. But now I'd like to apply this evening's uh, teaching in, in the last few minutes. Application number one, application number one, here's your blank. Throughout history, spiritual arrogance has been the consistent pitfall of God's people. Throughout history, spiritual arrogance has been the consistent pitfall of God's people. So tonight's story shows again how the children of Israel were a special people, chosen by God. 
and because God had chosen them rather than the Egyptians, remember last week? They came to understand that they had a special position in God's plan for the world. And through the centuries, this sense of being special in God's sight to the exclusion of others, it just gained momentum. This sense of being God's special people to the exclusion of others. And by the time Jesus came, this was even reflected in the very blueprint of the temple in Jerusalem. Remarkable. This is, if a Gentile ever went into the court of the Jews, they were stoned to death because Gentiles were considered unclean. Think how honed this chosenness had made them think that they were special. They were clean. They were God's people. And the word they used for the Gentiles, gohim. The Gentiles were the dogs. And this attitude had been honed down to a perfect art by the time Messiah came onto the scene. And so, as God always does, when people come to think that they have an exclusive claim to his favor, God sent a prophet to slam their arrogance with piercing disrespect. This is the exact message that God gave to John the Baptist. So turn with me to Luke, the third of the four Gospels. Turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, and let's look at verse 2. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. Here's John the Baptist coming, this incredible prophet, like Elijah, as the Old Testament had prophesied and Jesus verified. Verse 2, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness... And he came to all the district around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As it is written, the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way for the Lord, make his path straight. Every ravine shall be filled up and every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough roads smooth. Okay? So John comes with a messianic message. He comes saying that he's making ready the way for the Lord. And at this point, the Jews are happy, happy to hear this message. He's simply quoting a portion of Isaiah that they were very familiar with. And they loved quoting the messianic prophecies because they knew that their Messiah was going to come and blow away their Gentile oppressors and put them in charge of the world and throw all the non-Jews into hell. They were they loving this preaching so far, John. It's like, preach it, brother, preach it, right? You can hear them saying, great message, John. But as often happens with God's people, they wanted John to stop quoting from Isaiah chapter 40 right there. But he didn't stop. He kept quoting. And the next line in Isaiah was most inconvenient for those who thought that they had a special claim to God's favor. Look at verse 6. And all flesh, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So John burst their bubble by saying that God was going to save all flesh, regardless of their lineage, or heritage, or race, or ancestry. God was going to save the scum of the earth Gentiles too, as Paul loved to use the term about himself. And just to make sure that they didn't miss it, he did two things. First, he told them that they were in big trouble. And second, he told them 
that being Jewish didn't matter when it came to salvation. That's right. He slammed them. Look at verse eight, uh, 7, next paragraph. He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers <laughs> who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Got it? We're Hebrew. We're Israelites. We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Can you imagine how offensive that sentence was to a Jew? Here's the prophet saying, not only is being Jewish irrelevant to personal salvation, God can even make inanimate objects. He can make rocks into children of Abraham if he wants to. Talk about getting dissed by the prophet. But before we go shaking our fingers at the Hebrews, look again at application number one that you wrote in. Look at it. Throughout history, spiritual arrogance has been the consistent pitfall of God's people. So this pattern isn't just true of Israel. It's true of all of God's people. Everyone who's ever been saved by God's grace must be aware of this pitfall. It happens so naturally. Here's a really sad fact. As soon as God's, uh, God brought the Gentiles into the center of his salvation plan, as soon as he established the church as his special chosen people, guess what the church did? If you've watched the last several weeks, you know that in Romans 11, Paul talks about how the Jews have been cut off from God because of their unbelief, their hardness of heart. But then, in the midst of Paul talking about hard-hearted Israel, he launches an immediate warning to the Gentiles in the church. So let's look at a section of Romans 11 that we skipped when we studied it a couple weeks ago. Turn with me to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. We've been there. We spent a lot of time there, but we skipped around almost all of this text. And now you'll see how pertinent it is to tonight. Romans chapter 11, starting with verse 13. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen, the Jews, my fellow countrymen, and save some of them. For if their rejection be reconciliation of the world, what would their acceptance be but life from the dead? And if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is whole also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, the olive tree being the picture of a true saving faith like Abraham, faith reckoned as righteousness, his justification by faith, the truly saved, that being the root, faith in grace, right? But the, um, do not, verse 18, look at this, do not be arrogant toward the branches. 
Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Listen, replacement theologians, saying that the church has replaced Israel because Israel doesn't have it. Listen to this. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Verse 22, behold then the kindness and severity to God, to those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in his kindness, isn't that amazing? If you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Listen, if you think you're chosen, if you think you're part of the elect, if you do not continue in faith, you will be cut off. And verse 23 also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted back in for God is able to graft them in again. What had caused Paul to write this tear your face off message to the Gentiles, by the way? Paul talks about, um, imagine this. He was writing to first generation. He was writing to, listen, first generation Gentile Christians. God had just turned from using Israel as his salvation plan to launching the church. And in less than one generation, in less then one generation, the Gentiles were already starting to have the same spiritual arrogance that Israel had had for centuries. So, write this in. Believer, believers, beware. Every group of people, every group of people who have received God's grace and calling are at great risk for spiritual arrogance. This pitfall of arrogance is pervasive in the church today. So I want to ask you personally, do you look at any group of people or class of people or race of people or type of people and miss the fact that God loves them every bit as much as he loves you? Do you frequently remind yourself that God plans to save every single person who ever lived and do you frequently remind yourself that the difference between you and everyone else who hasn't yet believed is God's grace? Let me say that again. Do you frequently remind yourself that the difference between you and everyone else who hasn't believed in God yet is God's grace? And this leads us to application number two. Application number two. Here's your blanks. We're called to weep for the lost house of Israel and for everyone else who's lost. We're called to weep for the lost house of Israel and for everyone else who's lost. Let me stop for a moment and think about where we are today in the history of the world. From God's perspective, think about it. In the prophetic Old Testament picture of Genesis, we're between Joseph's first appearance and his second appearance. And what that means is we're between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So let's look at the Old Testament biblical picture and see. Ready? Write it in. 
who we are in the Joseph story. Ready? In the Old Testament picture, we're the Egyptians. We're the Gentiles. And amazingly, we who are undeserving have come to recognize Jesus. And by his prevenient grace, our ears have been opened and have been sa- we've been saved and delivered. But today, the Gentiles who've been grafted into God's salvation history often ignore the great spiritual needs of the Jewish people around us. In fact, we're often blind to the desperate spiritual situation of almost anyone around us, whether Jew or Gentile. Would you like the facts? George Barna's research shows, this is staggering to me. George Barna's research shows that in America, only one in a hundred American adult believers ever leads another adult to Christ. Let me say Barna's stats again. Only one in a hundred adult American believers ever leads another adult to Christ. So, Here's the second way I want to apply this lesson. We who have experienced God's amazing grace should be deeply grieved by the lostness of the Jews and everyone else around us who haven't recognized the Savior. One of our main focuses in life should be paying attention to those who need Jesus. So as we close, let's look at a man who couldn't take his mind off of his lost friends and family. Look back at just two chapters. Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, the first verse. Look at this. Paul speaking, I am telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish, listen to what he says, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are the Israelites. Can you believe it? I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. He says, basically, I would die and go to hell and be separated from Christ if it would lead to the salvation of my brothers and sisters. As we recall the tender-hearted stories tonight as we finish of Joseph and Jesus and Paul weeping over the spiritual blindness and deafness of others, let me ask you some questions. when was the last time you wept over the lostness of those around you? Who are you weeping over? Who are you grieving over? Who are you taking to the throne? Who are you relentlessly pursuing in love? What lost, hard-hearted people are you lavishing with grace and tenderness and kindness and love? When you look around you and see people in need, Do you realize that this provides an opportunity to be Jesus to them at the very time that they might be most open to his saving grace? Tonight I'm going to finish in an unusual way. Before you get up from watching this session, I'd like you to take a moment to list the names of the people who the Lord is bringing to mind right now. Make a list of those around you who who you need to grieve and weep over them. Make a list of the hard-hearted lost people that you'll commit to pray for. Make a list of those who you'll look for opportunities to show Christ's undying love to. Just use a space in your notes or another piece of paper 
so that you can easily put it in your Bible or someplace else accessible as you pray.